at law school, corporate clerkship recruitment is considered to be especially demanding. Some of the dedicated lawyers who have survived this vicious process are part of an elite squad known as Allens. These are their stories. And welcome back to Allens Confidential. You're here with me, Rosanna, and my best friend, Geneva, and we are interviewing two of my favourite ever bosses. <laughs> We've got with us a partner and a managing associate from the TMT team in Sydney, Valeska Block and Dave Roundtree, who I used to work for when I was a paralegal. Welcome, Dave and Valeska. Hello. Thank you. Now, I think we always start off the podcast with a brief question, which hopefully both of you being technologically enabled will be well equipped to answer. What are your favourite podcasts? Ready? Do you want to kick off? Yeah, that's a really hard one. I spent nine months of my maternity leave period basically just listening to podcasts while walking around outside because it made me feel like I was having adult conversations. <laughs> I actually wasn't. I think my, my all-time favourite would have to be long form, um, which has been going for years and years, but it's basically interviews with long form journalists and it's about the stories that they've, they've been writing and reporting on but also just the craft of journalism um, and I, I love it. And and then on the comedy side, it would hands down have to be my dad wrote a porno. Oh my god, it's so good! <laughs> oh, it's awful. You, you'd think it would get old, and it just never does. I'm several books in now. So Once I was listening to that on the train, and I was laughing so hard that I was crying. I must have looked like I was having some sort of fit, but it's just so good. <laughs> I actually great. have a friend who started listening to it with her dad. Oh, oh no. bring it full no, circle. No, that's a I just feel idea. like that's a bad choice. <laughs> no, I had mentioned to my dad that I was listening to it, and he was like. I might skip that one. <laughs> I think that's wise. Um, on my front, uh, I listen to a bunch of terrible podcasts that I'm not going to admit on any kind of recorded uh, or published uh, thing that to do with strategy card games. But the thing that I uh, mostly really enjoy is uh, Reply All, which is a Gimlet yeah. podcast, which is about technology, uh, human interest stories. It's it, okay, kind of... Let's me pretend that I'm actually up with internet culture by giving me a kind of once a once a week or once every couple of weeks update on what the latest memes are. Excellent. Uh, do you find that that's helpful not only just in your, you know, for your interest, but also for your work as a technology lawyer? <laughs> I don't think the uh, the necessary like the the deep internet culture stuff is specifically necessary for the role of the lawyer, but <laughs> it is. Practice in memes. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's not a it's not a specific area of the law yet, meme law. Although maybe our IP colleagues might have a view on that, but um, <laughs> but you know, it is. I think actually just kind of getting explanations of different aspects of the internet and how it's work, how it's working, different acts. You know, they often do episodes about cybersecurity and the impact on that and, you know, heck, how people get, um, you know, phishing attacks. One time they tried to, they actually ran a, ran a thing where they tried to run a phishing attack against their own boss to see if it would work. <laughs> and Valeska and I kind of do a lot of work in that space. So it's always, um, you know, really interesting. <laughs> it was really interesting to see that, yes, anyone actually can get fished because, you know, sometimes you might roll your eyes a bit about how someone can, you know, how can they give their credentials over to that? But, you know, um, even even people who are relatively sophisticated can get uh, can get fished. And so it was kind of cool to, to go through that process. Because phishing attacks are so sophisticated nowadays. Gone are, gone are the days when it was really awful grammar. Um, and all talking about sort of Nigerian princes, it's super sophisticated and can be really hard to, to detect. My yeah. problem now is I just ignore every email. So if it's eBay, <laughs> it could legitimately be eBay. I don't know, but I've deleted it straight away because I'm just like, no, nah, I'm not engaging with this now. <laughs> Who knows what it is? That seems cyber safe. <laughs> yeah, Possibly bad for the rest of your life, but that's fine. <laughs> 
So you both do a lot of work in data breaches and phishing in that kind of space. Is that something that you're noticing is just exploded in the last few years? And can you tell us a bit about the way in which your practice has evolved recently? Yeah, I, I think the the volume and sophistication of attacks on businesses, on individuals has just absolutely exploded. I think on top of that, I, I mean, this stuff has been around for a little while, um, but on top of that, what we're seeing is that mandatory breach notification laws have really swept the globe. Certainly in Australia, that was introduced um last year in relation to personal information and we're seeing a bunch of other regulators become much more interested in this space as well. So not only are the tax the attacks happening, but they're being forced out into the light now as well. So we're we're hearing about it con- continually. Yeah, I think there was some view when kind of mandatory breach notification obligations came in that maybe you wouldn't see a huge uptick because everyone was already you know, was doing their best practice to notify and take steps to deal with it. Turns out that's not the case at all. And uh, <laughs> and that the threat of a, uh, you know, enforceable legal obligation has, you know, quite some impact on the way, on people's behaviour, especially around this. And so you're seeing this, you know, really massive increase in, in breaches that are notified. And you guys have all probably seen in your inbox just like, I don't know how long it's been since the last time you got an inbox saying you've had your personal data compromised, but it can't be that long. It was like two or three weeks. And I think yes. the the impact on businesses is becoming more and more obvious too. I mean, there's certainly the financial impact, but there are also a whole lot of consequences that perhaps businesses didn't necessarily expect. So, for example, a lot of these breaches are now shining a light on some of the s- s- I guess, more dodgy or unethical data handling practices that have been going on. Um, and so there's been a real focus on those consequences as well and what organisations should actually be doing irrespective of whether it comes to light yeah. as a result of data I mean, breach. We tend to find that when we're working with clients, you know, there's there's the circumstances that give rise to whatever breach and, you, you know, quite often it can be just be mistakes. You know, people make mm. mistakes and that's a it's absolutely forgivable. But the uh, like underlying issues that businesses often have in relation to handling, they, it's really challenging given how much data and information is generated these days for people to actually manage and understand and have a clear view over what they're doing and what they're using. And, you know, more often than not, when we kind of start looking into an assi- these breaches and assisting clients, they kind of reveal a host of other things that, you know, clients can be doing better to help you know, manage their information and resources. I think the the other thing as well that we've seen over the past few years um, is that there's not only a focus now on the circumstances that led to the breach itself, but there's real scrutiny over the breach response as well. And so there are sometimes like fairly benign breaches actually where the the sort of after effects are pretty catastrophic because of the way it's been mishandled and then vice versa. Sometimes there are really bad breaches which are just handled beautifully um, and you know, there's almost a groundswell of support from from the market because you know could could be any anyone really to pick up on that are you finding that TMT which has historically been a transactional um, practice that's sort of much more front end mm-hmm. is turning into a bit more of a hybrid practice where you have more of a back end possibly litigation compliancey sort of focus in some of your work yeah, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. We do, we def, we're definitely um, like, especially on the on the privacy and, and data front, we're more involved in kind of investigations, um, and that's really a consequence of the re- relevant regulator who we would tradition- traditionally deal with being kind of more interested in in being uh, 
you know, being a bit more proactive and on the front foot about dealing with data breaches. Historically, they probably haven't had the resources to, to manage it, to be frank. But, uh, you know, we are kind of finding that that practice is, is not just, you know, advice and transactional, but it's also working with these investigations and, and trying to assist clients through through those processes. Yeah, that's right. I, I think, I mean, it's always been a bit of a hybrid practice in a sense because it's been transactional and advisory, but certainly in the data breach, cybersecurity, cyber resilience space, um, we're working actually really closely with litigation as well, which is one of the nice things about TMT. You, you get exposure, you get to work with a lot of different teams around the firm. So on, on data breach response, um, we work with the litigation team and, and others, but then even on the um, preparation, so, so there's been much more scrutiny from APRA and ASIC, for example, on organisations having adequate systems in place to make sure their businesses are resilient from a business continuity perspective and a cyber resilience perspective. Um, and so we've been dealing, for example, with the, with the sort of funds and financial services regulatory sector um, or team on, on that kind of work as well, which is really fun. I've got to say my favourite matter last year was the matter that I worked with TMT on, with Dave actually. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, in, that's when you were in competition, right? Yes, I was in competition. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of we, we get to we get to in TMT. Have we actually ever said what the acronym is, Technology, Media and Telecommunications for those? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> and there should be a data added on the end of there now that's too, right. I think. Uh, TMT, TMT doesn't, doesn't have the same ring though. No. Just... Um, but yeah, we get to, you know, we, we'll, we'll pretty frequently work with our comp colleagues in competition and colleagues in litigation. Obviously, you know, we're transactional, so working with, you know, M&A and corporate support and, and projects, projects well. uh, you know, like large scale technology projects, which are often can cross over with defense and, you know, uh, and kind of huge, uh, like infrastructure builds. So it's kind of a pretty diverse area where we get to work with uh, like a large number of our colleagues. Yeah, just like every team. Yes, IP, pretty much. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. IP and tax. Yeah. Is there any <laughs> team you don't work Actually, with? Actually, I worked with you when I was in employment as well. Exactly. Yeah, Accelerate right. Matter. Yeah. Oh, that's a good thing to talk about. Should we delve into Accelerate a little bit? Sure. Well, so this was a brainchild of yours, I understand, Valeska. Yeah, Can not, you tell not, us how it not came me about? exclusively, but, but we were – uh, it was a few years ago now um, where we were increasingly talking to our big corporate clients about the impact of disruption on their businesses and disruption wasn't as overused a term as it is, it is, as think, it is today. I think it probably was even then. <laughs> uh, I'd like to think that <laughs> it probably wasn't. Um, so, so we were doing that and then also as technology lawyers, we want to be exposed to the latest sort of cutting-edge technology and, and business models um, and so – you know, for for us, the the big challenge obviously was costs because startups can't, nor should they be paying sort of full rack rate legal costs. But at the t same time, we were hearing from um, startups in the ecosystem and also VCs and other investors that that there was in fact a gap in the market. And it was actually in the early days was when it was really critical, or when it is really critical for organisations to to get their legals right. Because otherwise, what happens is they go to raise capital, and the investors are having are actually either working walking away because it's just too difficult, or are having to spend some of the money that they could have been spending on the business trying to get things sorted out. Um, so we decided to sort of ex experiment basically, and and launch 
launched this practice. We put out 16 documents on on internet for free, um, which was a, a really big thing at the time. It's much more common now, but we had tailored these documents. We'd identified those documents which um, are most commonly used by startups. We'd tailored them. We'd made sure they were reviewed from a sort of not by not just by lawyers that they were plain English and could really be populated um, by the startups themselves. Put that out there. And, and started the practice and, and it was a bit of an experiment and fortunately the timing was really good as well because it, it, we launched a few months before Malcolm Turnbull came out with his innovation statement which then just created a huge amount of momentum for, for the sector. Um, and here we are today. So, so we now have a really great portfolio of, of startups. For us it's never been a volume play. Um, what we try and do is we try and back startups or, or scale-ups. We've got a real focus on scale-ups now as well, who we genuinely think could be kind of significant clients of the firm in a number of years. And we try and keep a portfolio of businesses at different phases of development and also from different subsectors. Um, and we, we kind of go on that journey with them and we offer lots of different alternative pricing arrangements. Um, and it's fun. It's great. They're it's one of the best cool things stuff. to work on as a junior lawyer. Yeah. Well, that was, I guess, my mm. next question is if a junior's in the firm and p- perhaps people coming in as summer clerks or graduates, I mean, what would their involvement in Accelerate look like? Yeah, it's one of the good things about it is that we can, you know, gives it's a real opportunity for the juniors. Um, we kind of, you know, we've kind of spent a lot of time thinking about the process that we wanted to, to put in place to deal with this and um, having thought of that process, that process is now basically entirely managed uh, by the the juniors. So, they get their kind of real firsthand experience of having those first initial client meetings, basically, you know, uh, trying to gather, gather information when, when a new client comes in to basically make an assessment against, you know, whether, whether there's someone who fits well with the Accelerate program. And that's like, you know, it's, it can sometimes be a while as a junior lawyer in some, you know, in some circumstances before you're put in front of a client. Uh, and expected to manage things on your own, but this is the kind of a, a real opportunity for them to do that. And so, you know, they ha- get to manage the client relationship. They get to have that initial meeting and assessment, and they kind of, you know, m- much of the work that is done is kind of based out of the the junior cohort, with then, of course, adequate support from the senior lawyers to in relation to those startups. Yeah, and and what ends up happening is, you know, we're talking about startups, so so really high growth tech or tech enabled it means things move really fast and so a lot of the ones that that we had in the early days and have now sort of scaled globally and so you've got junior lawyers who've owned owned those relationships from the beginning who now have really close relationships with the CEOs and and kind of senior management of those companies which is fantastic exposure as well and and I think being able to see a business grow and the whole history of that rather than, you know, so, sometimes um, as a junior lawyer you're working on one tiny aspect of, of an enormous transaction and, and that's great too but to get both sides of it and to be able to have that um, perspective over an entire business and the different ways it sort of changes over time is really interesting as well. Now, uh, just to pick up on something you've said, the the breadth of experience that you get, TMT technology, media, telecommunications, <laughs> and possibly data um, is – yeah, it, it's well, – <laughs> thank you, Ave. <laughs> Sorry, that was an appalling joke. Um, 
I there's I'm also um i was wondering there's it's a, it's a practice which is seems to be always including new things in it and you where you have to just stay abreast of new developments technology which you know as justice Wind, i think chief justice or justice windyer of the high court said about 50 years ago that you know law marches but in the rear and limping a little <laughs> do you find that it's hard to keep up with developments and where do you think it's going next and what are the new areas of law your practice might include just a small question mm. <laughs> yeah uh, is it hard to keep up absolutely yeah. uh you know i mean and you know we we're talking about on podcasts there is some there is some value in listening to podcasts <laughs> to 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 uh to make sure we're trying to understand what what trends are happening but you know in, in the world, in the world it's like you know there's there's only yeah. there's only yeah. like so much you can do but absolutely you know i mean the the real kind of uh fun part about you know what the part of the firm that we're in is that you know really clients expect us to to have an understanding about what's happening and what's coming down the pipeline and and have a bit of that forward focus and and so we spend a reasonable amount of time talking to our clients about that and think you know we we get the kind of privilege to to do some research and spend some time thinking about you know what are the impacts of you know the next big technology uh, trend that's coming through so. Uh, I think a real focus at the moment is is on AI and AI ethics and what that what that impact is going to be and and how how clients need to kind of prepare themselves to be thinking about you know how would they use it what would they what would they leverage what are the kind of factors that they need to to think about and and how it might impact their businesses and you know we've had the kind of been able to do you know we're kind of in a way expected to do that and it's but it's one of the things that's kind of the best about our job is that we we get to do that as part of our job and you know learn about new things and interesting things and and kind of become become experts in them and then try and kind of keep, make sure that our clients understand what the impacts are for them yeah, Dave gets to bring his deep sci-fi <laughs> fandom to work, basically. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think that's right. And what's also nice to see is the way these different trends t- start to converge over time. So for a few years now, we've been talking about um, commercialising data and, and unlocking the value in it and setting up governance frameworks for organisations so that they can be um, – getting the value out of it while doing that in a legally compliant and and importantly an ethically compliant or an ethical manner because just because you technically or legally can doesn't mean that that you should um and now we're seeing ai which is you know obviously been bub- bubbling away for for a number of years in in many ways but as as kind of the next thing that's sufficiently close and relevant to what's currently happening yeah. um but that doesn't necessarily have the, the legal framework around it and and that's one of the the great areas about what we do too I think is that the law is continually playing catch up to the technology and so we are often in uncharted territory thinking about how things fit within existing laws and where existing laws just don't really do the trick thinking about the frameworks that organizations or industries need to be putting in place um, so that that things so that they can keep innovating um, and doing that quickly but in a kind of sensible way. How do you find that there's – is there a balance in the way that you do that between thinking commercially and practically about your your clients and how they can do things and thinking sort of more industry-wide about the normative implications of these new technologies? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, 
I mean, our task as, as commercial lawyers mm-hmm. is always to think commercially and practically for our clients. But I think, you know, where you're starting to talk about those things that are normative and, and you know, start to have a kind of broader impact, you actually, you actually start seeing it you're already seeing changes in the market and the way that public are reacting and, and the way that, that, you know, public and media are reacting to certain things and, you know, data and AI and, and, you know, use of data is a really great example that, uh, you know, with changing expectations around the use of data, it's actually a commercial, you know, commercial approach and a practical approach is to advise your client to be really aware and understand the way those um, the way those kind of trends are developing and what the kind of current public view is because uh, that is going to inform how their data use is perceived if it was ever assessed. That's going to inform, inform you know, what the uh, standards of their use and their care of that information is. That's going to inform, you know, expectations of their regulator. And so you, you can't, you know, I mean, uh, we don't sit there and, and try and, you know, assess the normative um, <laughs> You know the normative function of you know whether you know the overall public good of something, but we absolutely you know it's really absolutely critical to a commercial and practical overlay to actually say well what is what is the expectation and what is the market saying about this and and how should you treat that in your in in this particular use case? Yeah, I mean there, there was a really good study that came out by the Harvard Business Review a little while ago, which found that organisations. Um, that offer control to consumers and that are also transparent in the way that they handle data are actually much less affected by the data breaches that they suffer and also those that, that, um, others in their industry can, can suffer because there's often a sort of contagion impact where organizations can, can be affected by data breaches that, that occur at, at a competitor level. Um, so I think those sort of stories show, um, that yes, that there's a regulatory imperative there, but actually there are some really good business reasons to be doing these things as well. Yeah. That, that's always a big help. And just avoiding backlash, I suppose, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Amazon that was the first company that was alleged to have been use, using data to, um, provide differential pricing for DVD products <laughs> 10 years ago or something. <laughs> Yeah. And I think they pretty quickly promised that they would never do that after it was discovered. Yeah, and, and things yeah. move on as well. So some of the things that were real no-nos a number of years ago are actually just a given nowadays. And so I think one of the challenges for businesses is getting the timing right. Um, you might you might have some great ideas, but but if the market hasn't quite caught up to you yet or ha- hasn't sort of <laughs> climatized, then you can get some real backlash, even if in 10 years' time it's just going to be standard. Yeah. But that thing about, you know, differential pricing is a really interesting point. Like, you know, people, you know, it's part of, you know, some of the conversations we're having with clients is, okay, well, you know, if you're going to be using data and using it, think about think about some of the outcomes that are likely to be generated and how those outcomes might be perceived um, so, you know, is it, is it going to be an outcome that uses some kind of automated decision making or data analysis to effectively come up with some kind of differential pricing, which does discriminate against a particular group or says, you know, creates a, creates an outcome that is kind of substantially unfair, even if it might not be the intention of the, uh, of the particular thing, you know, make sure you think about that lens and, and think about, well, what, what, what is the potential kind of negative outcomes of some of these use cases and, and manage those risks. Yeah, that's that's right. In some ways, advise on the messaging around that because it's quite different to say, for if pick up that example, that if you plug in some kind of um, 
automated data processing that spits out a different price for someone who is, I think, as was uh, found by a Harvard Business Review author, logging into a travel comparator website, for example, on a Mac or a Windows, mm. that's a bit of more differential pricing for two different groups. But if you're just using a dynamic pricing model that shows cheaper prices because of hotel availability or time of day, I mean, that's quite a different story. And is so some of the advice that you give, not necessarily about quite black and white law, but about just, you know, oh, there's, a, yes. yeah, there's, there's a lot of grey. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, so. So that we, yes is the short answer. But we've been doing a lot of work on ethical ethical data handling principles, which which inevitably include um, principles around automated decision making as well. And so I, I think um, when you're set, setting up. I guess, governance frameworks or decision-making frameworks for how you treat different use cases so that ultimately you can be making decisions across an organisation, um, you know, not in an ad hoc way and speeding those those decisions up. Um, it's really important to, yes, you look at the law, but also for the organisation to have a view of what what its overall vision is and what the ethical guiding principles should be as well. Um, and sometimes there's a little bit of overlap with, with the law, but often there isn't because the law hasn't quite caught up. And so um, that comes back to the culture of the organisation and, and that that's a discussion that needs to be had at sort of fairly senior management level um, and it's also when you think about organisations which are made up of, of um, multiple entities as well that might have quite different business units, um, that's also something that needs to be dealt with and, and it's often one of the very first steps that need to be happen that need to happen and that need to be hashed out before you make any sort of follow-on decisions. Now, I'm loving this discussion. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of data chat. We do actually um, do lots of other stuff other than data. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> conscious, I'm conscious that right. we've really zeroed in on an area of particular interest to me. <laughs> so, are there um, other areas of yeah, your practice please, you'd like to Please discuss? tell us about the other really fun, also very interesting <laughs> areas of the TMTD practice. TMTD. Um, yeah, it's a bit of a weird and wonderful world sometimes. Uh, so, I mean, you know, obviously there's the whole, you know, area of practice that we've been discussing, but yeah, I mean, ultimately we're commercial lawyers and we do kind of commercial transactions and, um, and so, you know, we, you know, whether that is a kind of technology focused transaction. So, you know, there's obviously a big component of our work that's outsourcing or major procurement or major technology deals or major technology transformations or kind of, uh, kind of large scale commercial transactions that have a really big technology element. That's a really kind of core part of what we do. And, you know, I mean, core part of what we do is, you know, contracts and contracting and, and making them work and kind of, uh, you know, I spend, I'm currently spending an awful lot of my time, um, assisting someone who, you know, wants to become an electronic conveyancing company, um, which is, uh, very, very interesting, actually, um, uh, which I would not have said if I was looking at, uh, at, at this during my College of Law days. Um, yeah, I'm relearning a lot about trust accounting. Um, but, uh, but, you know, so, you know, that, that's a large-scale technology-driven project. Um, and, you know, and so that, those are kind of uh, – that's a really kind of big and core part of our practice. Yeah, that's right. And we, we do a lot of procurement work, so, and that's through the entire life cycle as well. So from – um, clients of ours who, who are ultimately customers going out to tender um, for a particular build, let's say, and then they get 
tenders back in. They down-select to a few. They might go through sort of parallel no- negotiations to, to retain the competitive tension. Um, then finally they'll down-select and, and negotiate until they've signed the deal. And then even once that deal is signed, there's a whole raft of sort of vendor management issues that happen. So we assist through, throughout that entire life cycle from helping to draft the um, request for proposal, obviously the agreements as part of that, negotiating with those parallel, you know, in parallel and doing the, the vendor management side of things as well. Yeah, so I mean, sometimes that's for like government clients or for uh, large corporate clients who are procuring something big. And we've also kind of done some work for kind of large scale developments where we're actually acting for the developer. So yeah. some one of my formative transactions in the in the team with when I was just a, a, a baby lawyer and Valeska didn't quite have the partner title was <laughs> um was uh, for the development of the like you know the infrastructure that kind of underlies this payment system in Australia now that enables real-time payments. So when you look in your bank and you see a little thing that says like OSCO and money moves really fast, that was because of Velasco and I. <laughs> really? Because that's my favourite thing when I'm setting money. I mean, when I, say it's it's I, when, when I say it's because of Velasco and I, I obviously caveat in that we didn't build a single thing of it. But <laughs> no, no, I legally, understood that to mean solely you two are responsible yeah, no, for uh, that program. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. The but for principle, guys, wouldn't have happened without you. Exactly. Uh, that's Very right. much not true, but <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the the other thing that that we do is we do a we do do a reasonable amount of tech sector work, um, and that includes Australian tech sector, but also global, um, and in particular global companies that need things localized for the Australian market, or that are testing things out in an Australian market, or that are just rolling out their products and services here as well. Yeah, um, which is re- really interesting. yeah. So you know that's like advising you know the the Googles and the of the world in about how they're interacting with the you know the particular issues of the Australian market as well as kind of dealing with local clients and large scale you know all of the big four and and you know their major kind of commercial transactions with a technology focus. Yeah. So you got a few things on is what I'm <laughs> gathering from this conversation. Just a couple. Yeah. Telco regulatory. That's another <laughs> one. It's pretty pretty mixed bag. Yeah. Bit media. Meet out, spend some time at Fox Sports um, and doing some of their broadcast rights deals, which is and assisting with that. And that's one of that's the that's a real doozy. It's real fun when when you get to do something that's like a sport that you watch, and you're like, ah, that's great. I get to watch the sport because I did this contract. <laughs> I've earned this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, As opposed to a sport that you do, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> speaking of sports, <laughs> can we please talk about ultimate frisbee? <laughs> I mean, we can. <laughs> it's very I mean, much. It's called I'm, ultimate disc. No, it's absolutely not. It's called. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was sport knowledge. Called ultimate disc yeah, when well, I it's funny because there's a uh, there's a lot of people who uh, uh, don't like calling it frisbee because frisbee is a trademark, and so they just call it ultimate. And um, <laughs> which is like, like honestly, the person who named the sport did a real disservice, like back in the seventies or something, because it's very, it's a very silly name, but it's a great sport. <laughs> well, let's backtrack. I, why are we asking are you about uh, frisbee? I, I suppose because I. I did uh, spent most of the last kind of ten to fourteen years of my life playing frisbee with my spare time is probably the reason you're asking me, and have occasionally uh, represented Australia playing it. I think I was uh, I was actually reflecting on it this morning, and um, and the kind of as you do, uh, as as you do, as you do. <laughs> Come on, Valeska, let me finish. Um, 
<laughs> reflecting on the fact that the clerkships are coming up and that interviews are coming up and what and this is how you think you're going to make friends with cool young people <laughs> no 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 not 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 the cool young people they, they're not going to want to talk about frisbee but i can tell you what it was real good to have on my resume as a as a summer clerk applicant because no one actually knew what it was and so i had to i guess basically just to spend like two-thirds of any particular interview just explaining what Ultimate Frisbee was and why I did it all the time and what it meant. And that <laughs> meant very little time that they actually had to question me about anything. So, I could just talk about a sport that I played and, like, explain the rules of the game. And then that was kind of most of my clerkship interviews. And and hopefully, you know, like, less t- the, the less time I had to actually talk about things that weren't Frisbee was probably the better for me. So, I, I just thought it was a, you know, I feel like I got away scot-free on most of my interviews because I just had that. So, tissue Is young that place. what you're trying to do right now? <laughs> I, I was we're going to see a sudden surge of, of <laughs> ultimate frisbee on CVs from now on. I mean, to close every podcast episode, we always ask what advice you would give your younger self in terms of starting out your legal career. Obviously, Dave, you've suggested find a niche sport and really Absolutely. go hard in niche interviews and talk about success. it. Other than joining a niche sport, if you were starting out as a summer clerk, what would you say to your think, younger self? Um, I think to just keep reading broadly, listening to podcasts, um, because at the end of the day, and and don't need to be law related at at all. In fact, I think the the broader we sort of expose ourselves to, the better. Because at the end of the day, it's the ability to kind of make those connections, which becomes really valuable over time. Um, and I know that there's there's been a lot of talk about lawyers' jobs being replaced by AI and, quite frankly, I think, you know, by all means take away the repeatable. Um, Doc review, so long, yeah, yeah that, that sounds great to me. But but I think the things that are going to become increasingly, I mean, they've always been important, but increasingly important um, are is our ability to bring sort of creativity and judgment and humanity to, to the things that we do so that a- anything that's going to help you do that and be in touch with people in the world is is really going to become more, more and more critical. Oh, so it is good uh, that Geneva watches The Bachelor all the time. <laughs> uh, I start to be so excited. <laughs> cannot wait. I'm American, I'm not Australian. Oh, I'm not discerning. I've watched the German <laughs> one too. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Your advice sounded very sage and, and, and thought through and I probably don't have uh, as much because I think my younger self uh, just kind of, yeah, I think, did law school because I didn't want to go and find a job at that time and I thought doing th- another three-year degree would be easier than finding a job, <laughs> which is really like not long-term thinking. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think I think in, in terms of like people coming through, I mean, you know, the environment has changed since, you know, I – started my career but what hasn't changed is that you know the people you work with are are critically important and and so just you know always being kind of kind and and friendly and and being you know approachable is and and a person that people want to work with makes just all the difference and it makes it's the reason why people want to come into work because they you know not just you know people love the work they do and they and you know the the work you do for clients is exciting and and that you know if you got your name in lights, you know that's even better. But uh, what makes that all all doable and makes what makes you want to do it is the people you work with, and that's kind of what I what I've found in over my career. And so I think you just always want to keep that in mind about you know that environment, and I think that's almost the most important thing in your career. Great. 
Well, thank you both for being on our podcast today. I have to say this was a particularly interesting conversation to be part of, and I'm now thinking that maybe I should have gone through TMT for a rotation because <laughs> it sounds fascinating. Um, but thank you so much for joining us. This has been great. I mean, I also can't thank you enough just for the time you spent today, but also for the advice and work that we've done together over the early stages of my career. <laughs> um, so this has been a particularly exciting podcast for me. And thank you very much. Thanks, and Tune in next time for the next episode of Alan's Confidential. Thanks, guys.